We've got some, some folks with us today who are evacuees. And I want to say to those of you who are members, um, if you happen to be sitting by someone you're, you're not sure who they are, it's always a good habit to introduce yourself and be friendly. But I, I want to ask you, members, today to, to reach out to folks. And if you find that you're sitting near an evacuee, see if you can take them, take them out to lunch. We've got a, I know some of us have to be in a luncheon for teachers right after church, but but for, the, for those of you who don't have to be in that and you happen to see some folks around, why, why don't you try to, to minister in that way? And maybe you can be a, an encouragement as you listen to all that's going on. And, and, and uh, uh, so, so members, take that opportunity. I, I ask you to, to minister in that way. This morning, we're going to spend a little time in Ephesians 3. Uh, if you go to a museum, you know... Uh, you know what to expect in a museum. You're going to see some sort of an artifact that's preserved and put on display, or you're going to see some sort of an educational exhibit, or perhaps some renowned piece of art. You, you know what to expect if you go to a museum. If you go to a hospital, you expect to see sick people being cared for. If you go to a police station, you expect to see folks who are concerned about order, maintaining order and enforcing the the rule of law. But what about a church? When you think about a church, what is a church supposed to be? Well, this morning, we're going to think together about that. Again, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. Uh, I am preaching a bit differently this morning than I usually do. Normally, you know I preach through a book of the Bible or I preach through a section of a book of the Bible. This morning, I'm, I'm not going to stay in one text. I'm, I'm going to hop around a bit. I don't do that often. I prefer, and I think the best kind of preaching is preaching through the, the Word and letting the Word speak. But on occasion, every now and then, I, I like to take a, a little time and look at a p- particular issue. And this morning, I felt like as we begin a new school year, it's kind of a fresh start. It would be good for us as a church to think about who we are and and for each one of you who are believers to to consider, hey, what is God calling me to to be and to do as a part of this church family? And so uh, we'll be, again, uh, we'll spend uh, quite a bit of time in the book of Ephesians, but we'll be hopping around some. Paul wrote the the book of Ephesians to the churches at Ephesus and the surrounding regions. And in Ephesians, the the section that we're going to begin with is sort of the ending on a prayer that Paul had prayed for the Ephesians. He had prayed this beautiful prayer for the Ephesians, and he closes with just an expression of praise toward God. But this expression of praise toward God tells us something about what the church is supposed to be. Let's look at Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. In these scriptures we see that the church is meant to glorify God. That's the purpose of the church. The church is meant to to bring him glory. In verse 20, Paul reflects on the great power of God, and he says this, God's capacity to give far exceeds anything we could even ask, anything we could think up or imagine. God has that kind of capacity. He can give beyond all that we would hope for. And what we see is that God works mightily on behalf of his people. 
We see that all throughout the Bible. Think of the incredible rescue uh, that, that God performed rescuing his people from Egypt. Think of how God rescued ultimately in the cross. God works powerfully on behalf of his people. Verse 21, Paul prays that God would be glorified in the church. He also says in Christ, and the reason for this is that we can only glorify God truly if we are in Christ. And so we come together as a church as those who've been redeemed, those who are in Christ. And when we think about glorifying God, to glorify God is to acknowledge his greatness. It's to acknowledge his his beauty, his majesty. And that's the purpose of the church. So we, we talked about a museum, talked about a hospital, a police station. What's a church supposed to do? Ultimately, this is the ultimate calling of a church. This is our purpose. It's to glorify him. Now, when a sculpture, uh, when, when you look at a sculpture and you see a sculpture that hours and hours and hours have been spent on making this sculpture just right, what does it do? It points to the greatness of the sculptor. Or you listen to a, to a song and it's a moving song, it points to the skill of the artist. Well, you know what the church is meant to do? It's meant to point to the beauty of God. As he takes sinners like you and me who are broken and messed up and he rescues us and he begins to shape us and change us, it's meant to be a beautiful picture of who he is. So that the watching world who doesn't know him will, will see us and say, oh, I see what God can do. Look at that. That's the way that the church is to point to his beauty. And as, we, as we're a community uh, of faithful believers together, it points to, to his glory. It points to his artistry, if you will. So I want us to reflect together about how we as a church family can, can glorify God. Our mission statement is this, to lead people to love God, grow in Christ, and tell the world about the love of Jesus. That, that's our mission statement. In the next few weeks, we'll take a little time to think through uh, this together. It's always good to, to, to be reminded of what God is calling us to. Well, this morning, I want to take a little time to focus on some core values within our church. These are rooted in Scripture, values that are rooted in Scripture and and that I hope as a church family we we make central in, in who we are. So let's think together about some core values. First, we want to be ordered by the Word. We want to be ordered by the Word. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he says, brothers, I remind you, remember the gospel that that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. So, So he's writing to this church at Corinth, and he's saying, what I want you to stand on, what I want you to hold on to is the gospel that I preached. That's what is going to be steadying for you. That's what's going to guide you. He, he goes on to say, hold fast to the word. So as individual believers, we're supposed to, to look at the word and our lives are supposed to be ordered by the word. But not just that, as a church, our church should be ordered by the word, holding fast to the gospel, holding fast to the scriptures. 
We won't take the time to read it, but, but take a look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. This scripture emphasizes the fact that the Bible is absolutely true. We believe that, that as God spoke and to, the, to the original writers of scripture, that there wasn't an error in it, that the scripture is without error. And because of that, we believe that life should be ordered by the scriptures. And we believe the church should be ordered by the scriptures. So we're committed to the word. We want the word to guide us in all we do. When we gather here as a, as a church family, we want to read the word together. We want to pray. And we want to pray prayers that are informed by the word. We want to sing. We want to sing songs that, that are rich in the word. We want to hear the word preached. We want to be a church who is ordered by the word of God. And where culture and God's word collides, where that happens, brothers and sisters, we're gonna stand on the word. We're gonna stand right squarely on the word. We're not gonna play games and try to do gymnastics with the text so we can get where the culture wants us to be. We're gonna take the clear, plain teaching of scripture and we're gonna stand there. We're gonna be committed to that. So what drives a church? Often, churches are driven by tradition. The question is, how have we always done it? Well, that's what we better do. And if we don't do it the way we've always done it, that's not faithful. Now, we can learn a lot from tradition, but a church shouldn't be driven by tradition. We should learn from it. We shouldn't just abandon tradition. That would be foolish. We shouldn't be driven by tradition. Some churches are driven by innovation. Man, what's the newest? What's the, the fastest? What's the, the, the thing that's going to be shiny and bright and everybody's going to catch everybody's attention? Man, let's put on this big show. It's going to be huge and awesome. Man, some churches are driven by innovation. We shouldn't reject innovation. We should want to be relevant. But we surely shouldn't be driven by innovation some churches are driven by a particular worship style. Well, I like this style or I like that style. So this is what our church has to be. Some churches are driven by a few key families. You've probably seen a church like that. Two or three families, they, or even one family, they run the church. You, you may have seen it. The question is, what is going to order the church? And our answer must not be the pastor's opinion and it must not be your opinion or someone else's opinion. The answer is the word of God. I lose my authority as a pastor the moment I deviate from the word. I only have authority when I'm faithful to the book. So the question, how do, what do we want to be driven by? We want to be driven by the word. Second, we want to be gospel-centered in our focus. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, Paul wrote, to the Corinthian church, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the gospel that Jesus left heaven, came to this earth, and lived a perfect life. And he was nailed to the cross for our sin. He was buried and he came back to life, conquering death making a way for us to be saved and to be reconciled to God. That's the gospel. We want to keep a focus on the gospel in all that we do. We want the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus to be central. We want to seek to dwell deeply on the truths of the gospel, to live in reliance on the power of the gospel, to allow the gospel to speak into our lives. Let's say that I'm struggling with this situation or that situation. We want to ask, 
What does the gospel say about this? How does the reality of the gospel inform my particular situation? And as a church, we want to ask that as a congregation. We want to teach the gospel in our Bible studies. We want to teach the gospels in the songs that we sing, in the songs the kids sing, in Awana, in youth ministries, and you name it. We want the gospel to be central. And what I mean by this is that we don't want to teach that the Bible is a list of do's and don'ts. That's moralism. That's, that's not biblical Christianity. And sometimes we've made that mistake as a church. I don't mean us particularly. I mean the church at large. We've made the mistake of, of equating Christianity with being a moral person. It's not like that. Christianity is about knowing Jesus and loving him, about the God who redeems the people for himself and invites us to be a part of that. And so we don't want to tell kids following Jesus means don't do this, do that, don't do this, do that. We want to teach kids that following Jesus is about a God who loved them so much that he sent Jesus on a rescue mission for them. And now he's saying to them, hey, join me in this mission. I've got a plan for you, a purpose for you. You see, we want the gospel to inform all that we do. Now, have you ever had a a cup uh, with, with a little water in it? Say you had about an inch of water, but if you spill that cup, somehow that inch of water can cover like 100 square feet. You you know what I'm talking about. We've all done that and thought, how did that happen? But that is how we want the gospel to be in our church. We just want it to cover all that we do. We, We want this reality that God is a rescuer and a redeemer, and then he invites us into his story. We want that to permeate all that we are. Third, we want to be devoted to covenant community. We want to be devoted to covenant community. Uh, John 17, 18 through 21, Jesus prays, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What's Jesus praying? This is right before his death. He's praying for his disciples, that they'll be one, that they'll be, that they'll be committed to, to going out, to, to being sent out and telling people about him, but that they'll be one. Not only is he praying for us, he's praying for us. I pray for those who will believe. So what does Jesus want? He wants us to be believers who are united in a family And these families are supposed to be one, united around the truth of God's word and united in mission. Now, when Jesus shed his blood on the cross for us, he covenanted with us. And he kept his covenant that he would rescue and save. And and he's done that. And now we covenant with one another to to be a community together, to, to be a family together, a community with shared beliefs and with a shared mission. And so Jesus would have believers be a part of a a community like that, a local church. You can see that fleshed out more in Matthew 18. We won't take the time for that. But folks, there's a difference between attending a church and belonging to a church. Jesus wants you to belong to a church. You, You can't get away from that. He wants you to actually be vested in a church, not just attend here and there, but 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 put your heart and your soul and your life into a church. Again, there's no way to, to, to obey what Jesus says in Matthew 18 without something like that. So as we care for each other and as we love each other, we show, this is, this is crazy, but we show the watching world what the gospel's about. 
We show the watching world who Jesus is. So when they see the way as a church family, we, we minister to each other and love each other, it's a testimony of Jesus. John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus said it like this, a new command I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So how's the world gonna know that we're his disciples, that this thing's real? When we covenant together and we love one another and we're committed to one another, not in a casual relationship, but in a committed relationship. It's a little bit like looking for a house. You see all these uh, shows on TV where people are going around and looking at a house. Do I want this house, that house? And they show them this one and they look, this one's got a good closet, but this one really wanted a garage. Don't like the back porch. We've seen all of that. And some of us... We've, most of us probably have been house hunting at one point, or time, one point in time or, or another. But there's a huge difference between house hunting and signing on the dotted line. There's a big difference. When it comes to a church family, a covenant community, God wants us to sign on the dotted line. He wants us to have that kind of commitment to one another. Fourth, relentless in mission. Relentless in mission. In Luke 24, verses 45 through 48, Jesus uh, is talking to his disciples after his resurrection, and the scriptures say, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. What's Jesus saying to his followers? He said, look, What do we see? Once again, the gospel. This gospel that changes lives, that you're supposed to turn from your sin and believe in me. You're supposed to preach that all over the world to all nations. But start in Jerusalem, right where you're at. Start there and take the gospel to the nations. That is the mission that the church has been given. That is our mission. So we want to keep a focus on this mission that God has given us. We want to spread the glorious name of Jesus to all people, from our neighbor across the street to the Nuai people group in Nepal. We want to be faithful as a church to get the gospel to the world, to make disciples. So what does this mean? This means in the context of our everyday living, we want to be a church that cares for people, that loves people, that ministers to people. We want to be out there and we want, to, we want to show people the love of Jesus and we want, to, we want to share the gospel with them and we want to make disciples. That's the mission of the church. So we are driven by this overarching call. When I think of the word relentless, what comes to my mind is an Olympic athlete Think of an Olympic athlete. While other people are out dilly-dallying around, while other people are playing with this and doing that, and what are Olympic athletes doing? They are training. They are disciplined. They are relentless in their desire to, to achieve the gold. So they spend hours, day after day after day, working out, practicing, trying to perfect their skills. Relentless. And a congregation has to be relentless in desiring to make disciples and desiring to reach people for Jesus and desiring to, to help people become more like him. That, that, that's, what, that's the calling that, that the church has been given. Fifth, we are to be fervent in prayer. Fervent in prayer. Second Thessalonians 1, 
Beginning in verse 11, Paul prays this prayer for the church at Thessalonica. He says to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that by the name of our Lord, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul prays that God would use these believers at Thessalonica to bring him glory. And so any church that's serious about being used by God greatly has got to be a praying church. It's got to be a church who's serious about seeking the heart of God, about praying for people who don't, don't know Jesus, lifting up the, the, those who are not believers yet before him, about praying that the Lord would move in power in, in the midst of, of our church family. We don't want as a church, to arrogantly rely on our own strength. No, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be people who pray individually. Do you spend time praying that God would help you to to live out the faith? Do you spend time praying for people who don't know him, for your family, all those kinds of things? And do you pray for our church that, that as a church we'll be what we're supposed to be? So individually, we need to be praying. And corporately, as a church family, we, we need to spend times in prayer together acknowledging to God that if he doesn't do it, it is not going to happen. So folks, let's pray prayers. Let's pray prayers that God would do such a great work here that it would be clear that it was only his hand that did it. That God does such an amazing work in rescuing people and making disciples and and people being helped in his name that it's clear that none of us could have done it that it's clear that his very hand is at work. Let's pray those kinds of big, God-sized prayers. Could it be that hundreds of people in Uvalde, yes, even thousands, could be saved, could, could be changed, that we would begin to have to, to, to plant churches all over this town because, because people couldn't fit? Could, could that happen? God could do that. Wouldn't it be glorious if he did? Rescue the hundreds of people, thousands of people in our town that don't know him, that are struggling and in, in, in all sorts of heartache. Oh, let's pray God-sized prayers. Let's pray for God to move in great ways. I can remember when I was younger bragging about how strong I was. wasn't true, but at the time I thought it was. And many of you men have had that experience. You remember you were younger, you beat your chest, you're big and you're tough and you're so strong. But you know what prayer says? Prayer says to God, I surrender. God, I'm, I'm not strong. I need you. And as a church family, folks, let's surrender before him. Let's call out to him for him to move. We must be fervent in prayer. Sixth, we want to be devoted to equipping We want to be devoted to equipping. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, Paul wrote, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Why did God give church leaders? What does this say? To equip the saints. In other words, pastoral staff... We're supposed to minister, of course. That's clear from other parts of Scripture. But a primary responsibility that pastors have 
is to equip those who are believers within the church to carry out ministry, to, to help others, to share Jesus with others, to disciple others, to, to, to do all, all kinds of ministries. So my job, Ralph's job, Greg's job, well, a big part of it needs to be equipping you to, to do the work that, that God has called you to do, to do the ministry that God has called you to do. Now, it's often been said that football is thousands of people in desperate need of exercise watching 11 guys, you've heard this, on the field in desperate need of rest. And you know, sometimes church life can be like that. You know, some churches have the mindset, we hire these guys and they're supposed to do it. We hire them, they need to do it. That, the, the pastor's supposed to carry out the ministry. That's why we pay them. And we're supposed to sit. While the, no, folks, when we look at the Bible, we're all supposed to be in this together. I'm not supposed to be out on the field without you. We're all supposed to be out on the field. We're all supposed to be out there giving our all. So God, if you're a believer, God has ministry that he wants you to do. He has ways that he's calling you to serve. And so what we want to do is we want to help equip you to do that. We want to we help you carry out the ministry that God has given. That's a biblical model for ministry. Number seven, embrace Christ-honoring diversity. As a church, we want to embrace Christ-honoring diversity. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 14, says this, For he himself is our peace, that is, Christ is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What's Paul saying there? Well, here's the situation. Paul's talking about Jews and Gentiles, and there was a giant divide between those who were Jews and those who were Gentiles. The Jews saw the Gentiles as unclean, and there were all sorts of rules that the Jews had to follow not to be contaminated, if you will, by the Gentiles. So there was this giant racial divide. There was this giant religious divide separating the Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul says, even though there was a giant, huge gap separating the Jews and the Gentiles, this is what God did. God in Christ brought you together and made you one. And now you're one body. You're one body, and that is the way that it's meant to be. You see, as a church family, we should reflect our community we should be composed of all the different kinds of folks that are in our community, whether it's racially or socioeconomically. Why? Because we want to reach all people. This kind of diversity, this kind of diversity is beautiful and it's a good thing because what unites us is not the color of our skin or the size of our pocketbooks. What unites us is bigger, so much bigger than all that. It's that we know Jesus and our sins have been covered by him, that we love him. And that's so big that we can, we can work through any other kinds of differences. They're not enough to divide us. They divide the world. They shouldn't divide the family of God. Number eight, strengthen families. Strengthen families. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 30, because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that when a man and a woman get married, it's meant to show to the watching world the kind of love, the kind of undying love that Jesus has for his people. It's meant to be an instrument that points to the truth of the gospel. So it's incredibly important that we strive to encourage marriages, that we, that we strive to strengthen marriages, that we, that we strive to, to save marriages. It's a testimony of who God is. Not only that, Ephesians 6, 4 says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Here we see that parents are called to train and nurture their kiddos in the faith. They're called to train and, and to teach their kids in the faith. And so we want to be a church that helps parents do just that. Sometimes, parents, we, we have a tendency to think, well, we send them to church and that's good. And that is good. And, and just an aside here, I would encourage parents for you to set the kind of example for your kiddos that they know that you're going to be in church. We, we, will, we will cut our schedule, we'll sacrifice because we're gonna be in church. I think it's a really dangerous thing, parents, when, when we allow everything else to take priority over worshiping God and gathering with believers. That's dangerous to teach our kids. Everybody's gonna be gone, some, of course, but what you wanna do is you wanna teach your children that the rhythm of your life is that you meet together with God's people to worship Jesus. That, that's just who you are and what you do. But parents, we can't only just bring our kids to church. We need to be teaching them at home about who Jesus is, about how to read the Bible. We want to be teaching them the truths of the faith. God gives us that responsibility as parents. So as a church, we want to, we want to help do that. We want to help to equip parents in this critical role. On the morning of July 6, back in 2013, Asiana Airlines Flight 214 was landing in San Francisco not far from the airport, the pilot chose the wrong autopilot setting uh, as he approached for landing. And the plane struck a seawall just short of the runway. And in that accident, three people died and 49 had serious injuries. And as investigators looked into the crash, this is what they said, that there was too much reliance on automation. Basically, the wrong selection of, of autopilot and this kind of thing happens in families all the time. In marriages, if we're not careful, we just sort of set it on autopilot. We don't treasure our spouse like we should. We don't take time for date nights and to nurture our relationship. We just sort of set it on autopilot. Ah, oh, it'll be fine. And then we wake up one of these days and goes, what happened? It's because we weren't working and, and striving to, to ensure a closeness. So we, we got to be focusing on that. Can't do autopilot. And parents, this is what can also happen. If you're not careful, if, if we're not careful, we blink our eyes and our kids are 6 and 10 and 15 and 18. And if we're not careful, we spend all our time going here and doing this and doing that and being involved in this and that show and this and this event. But we didn't spend a lot of time reading the Word together around the dinner table. We didn't spend a lot of time discipling him in the faith. We can't put it on autopilot, parents. The culture's not going to support us in discipling our kids, not in the least. The culture's going to oppose us. So we've got to be intentional in our marriages. We've got to be intentional with raising our kids in the faith. And we want that to be a core value at our church to strengthen families. We've seen the heartbreaking and devastating effects of Hurricane Harvey already. 
Much more to see in the days ahead. At its height, a Category 4 hurricane bringing unprecedented amounts of rainfall and, and high winds. We've seen homes, buildings destroyed, lives destroyed. You see all that devastation, and it's heartbreaking. But I want you to know something, church. Spiritually, there are hurricanes going around in lives all the time around us. There are hurricanes that are wreaking havoc. You don't see the results as readily. You don't hear the wind or see the rain. But nevertheless, it's a reality. Those heartbroken kiddos or teenagers who go to school and face unrelenting teasing and cruelty. And there's a brokenness there that, that, needs, that, that needs attention, that, that needs love. Or consider those who have found themselves needing to get back to the bottle, needing another can. And before long, it begins to become an addiction that, that gr- is growing and growing, beginning to enslave them and entrap them and harm them and, and harm families. Oh, it's, it's, it's a devastation to see or those who are addicted by drugs, who, who are trapped in just another peel, just another opportunity to get a little more. And these things destroy lives. Those who are entangled in lust and porn and have to just keep going back, keep going back and find their marriages struggling because they're going in this direction. Kiddos who face abuse, who face terrible abuse. Families who are estranged, kids and parents who haven't talked for decades. See, this is carnage. These things are carnage. It's not as obvious, but it's real. Those who who face great suffering, those who are experiencing depression, who, who just feel so low. Those who suffer in loneliness, fear, anxiety, you name it. The effects of sin and the effects of of living in a fallen world are all around us. Not as apparent as the damage that Hurricane Harvey has caused, but just as real. Just as real. The question is, what's the rescue? Who goes out to help folks who are struggling like this? You know what the answer ultimately is? It's not this simple in that Come to know Jesus and everything's fine. It's not like that. I'm not saying that, but I am saying to you that if you come to know Jesus, there's new hope. There's new life. There's new beginnings. He washes away shame. He washes away guilt. He cleanses. You get a hope that's real. So who's the ultimate rescuer? It's the Lord Jesus. What does this mean? It means we need God-glorifying churches who are faithful to the mission of God. Why? Because we need to send out rescue workers. We need to send out rescue workers to the folks who are struggling, many of whom are right here in our midst. We ourselves, most of us, struggle in one way or another, and we need other people to, to help. So look at the spiritual devastation around you. Don't ignore it. It's not as obvious, but it's just as real. And you, 
If you know Jesus, you get right out there in the middle of the brokenness. You get out there on the field. You make it your goal to make Jesus known, to make disciples. Now, why does it matter if we're a church, if we're the kind of church that God has called us to be? Or for a moment, I want you to imagine what you've seen of Hurricane Harvey so far. What if there were no rescue workers? All the first responders evacuated. What if there were no medical staff, no doctors, no EMS, none of that? They left. And as you looked at this devastation and disaster, no one was left to offer any kind of care. No one came to help clean up. Imagine the kind of heartbreaking and devastating mess that would be, the kind of insult to injury. And yet spiritually, brothers and sisters, it's happening all around us, that very thing. So let's be the church that God has called us to be. Let's get out there in the middle of the carnage and the destruction. Let's quit coming up with reasons and excuses and justifications for why I need to sit in the stands. And let's get out there and let's get moving for the glory of God. Let's shine the light of the gospel. Let's let people see that in Christ there's hope, true hope. Let's tell them about a true rescuer, a rescuer that rescues for eternity. Are you in? Let's do this. Let's do it. Let's be a God-glorifying church. Some of you who are here today are, are not believers. You've, you've never had that turning point in your life where, where you've said to Jesus, I know that I've sinned. I want to call out to you, Jesus, forgive me. Maybe you've done religious things. Maybe you've been a good person. None of those things will save you when you stand before God on the day of judgment. If you don't know Jesus, and all of us have been there, it's like you're out at sea, and the waves are, are all around. Now, for a while, it may feel like you're out at sea, and it's a, a paradise. But eventually, the storms will come, and the paradise will be over. If you don't know Jesus, it's as if you're out at sea, and suddenly you find yourself all alone, and the waves begin to rise And unless someone rescues you, you have no hope. You see, the Bible says that we're dead in our sin. We cannot save ourselves. How do we get saved? We call out to Jesus and say, God, forgive me of my sins. I want to know you and follow you. And today, I'm saying to you, if you're out there and you've never trusted him, won't you today throw up your arms and surrender and say, Jesus, save me, rescue me. And you know what? He will. He'll save Let's go to the Lord in prayer.